Welcome to the Far Aim Podcast. I'm Tyler Brunkhorst. I'm Barbara Sutton. And I'm Jared Johnson. This is a takeover. This is episode 135. We are former guests of the show. They have taken over the show. Rob, Lee, and Scott are out on vacation. I think somewhere together in Florida. We don't know where they are. Who knows? But Doesn't here we matter. are. And today... Taking it over. <laughs> we, no, that's right. We are taking over <laughs> this podcast. And it's a demonstration of peer pressure. This original concept was just a, a funny idea in chat. And uh, here we are, the three of us taking over the RAIM podcast. And so today, we are going to talk about finding a flight school and how did we find our flight schools. So the most recent uh, entry into being a student pilot is Barb. Uh, you're out in New York. Uh, yep. Jared's down in Texas. I'm up in Seattle. I've been flying for over a decade. Jared's somewhat new and Barb's the freshest. So let's start with you, Barb. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you found your way into aviation. So I mentioned this on, um, I think, the podcast a couple of weeks ago. So if anybody hasn't heard that, it's worth a listen. I'm super good. But no, seriously, um, I, I really, it came out of nowhere. I'm the kind of person where like ideas will pop into my head and I'll be like, I'm going to go do this. And it was exactly like that with aviation, honestly. I started learning and reading about the the Mercury 7 and the first test pilots back in the day of um, Chuck Yeager and first breaking the sound barrier and like the, you know, jet aviation, like jet, you know, whatever, like a, the revolution essentially. And um, it was really, really cool. And reading about it and understanding like what role and pitch and yaw are, it's very different when you're physically in an airplane and when you're reading about it. And so I sort of put the books down and I was like, I'm going to do this. And um, I remember texting my husband and being like, I'm going to, I'm going to go fly planes. And he was like, like, you want to be a pilot? And I said, no, I just want to take like a lesson. I want to understand something. It's just, don't worry about it. It's just a one-time thing. Don't worry. And he was like, okay. Um, and I, I called up a flight school nearby and um, I went for a discovery flight and I loved it. It it was, I mean, I'm sure that you guys can speak to this also, like that feeling of of first like leaving the ground and watching the runway underneath you, that sight picture, staying on center line, you know, just like there's something amazing and ironically so grounding to it. Like I, I just felt like in order to be grounded, I needed to be in the sky. And I, it was amazing. Um, and I said, I think I need to do this more. Like I distinctly remember not as much the flight, but the feeling afterward, like I was so present and so clear minded. And like all of a sudden everything in my life was like organized. I was able to get things done. Like it was just, it, it just felt so right. So um, I continued taking lessons at that school, and ultimately, it's not the school I ended up at. But I mean, I'm sure that we'll 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 get to it. But that was definitely how I started and how I fell in love with it. So yeah, discovery flights are time. the best way, the highest recommendation I give to anyone that's looking to get into aviation, even if they don't have the funds for the full ticket. At least go fly a discovery flight with whatever flight schools near you. So there are a variety of different types of schools. So um, Jared, how did you get into that? You know, it's a, it's a good, it's a good question. Um, I was actually having a really tough week and I took my son out to our local airport. We live really close to a uh, local municipal airport and 
we were watching the approach of the uh, the airplanes coming in, and it just so happens one of the flight school owners drove over, opened his window, and handed me a card and said, "You know, you can take a flight if you like." I said, "No, I I, I don't think so. I, my vision isn't isn't good enough to fly." So he said, "No, if you have correct vision, you can." So from there, I said, "Sign me up." I bought the full sim. I had a full setup. I had 40 to 50 hours in, in a office sim before I took my discovery flight. And after I took the actual flight, it was, it was incredible. I, it was, I was hooked. So here we are. Awesome. We're what was it about down. that flight that you liked so much? Goodness. You know, I didn't anticipate, it wasn't clear to me that I was going to be on the controls. And mm-hmm. so being, that I was going to actually do some turns and some uh, coordination and uh, and actually be on the controls for landing pretty much through through the flare and he took over. Uh, he it was that was probably the most exciting aspect of it. Yeah, isn't that like Barb elaborated on the lack of detail in in what you were doing in the flight, but the motions that you left with that flight and the memories that you made from that, all those, all those details, like just how, how vibrant that memory is. And there's certain, uh, milestones as in your, your progression as a pilot from that first discovery flight to soloing and getting your, your private ticket and, and each rating beyond they're all special moments. And that discovery flight is something that is like the first time you've actually done that. So whatever experience you've had prior, with simulations or none at all and how that meets your realities of uh you know where you're expecting things and then the reality of this the feeling of of the engine vibrating and on on rollout to take off and the first time you pick up and the, the airplane gets light on the wheels uh the smells all the things you weren't accounting for isn't that just mm-hmm. something that i remember the most about was just like the smell of the oil inside the, the, the flight deck and all the things that just little micro details I wasn't expecting. And, oh, uh, av gas. Yeah. Yeah. hundred yeah. low lead. Oh, hundred low lead. Oh. For sure. Uh, we've had this discussion. Yeah. We yeah. Have. Yeah. And Barb, don't you have a candle, a hundred low lead candle? I do. I have a candle that smells like a hundred low lead. It really smells like a hundred low lead <laughs> where I'm shocked at the fact that like, I mean, it can't be, right, guys? You can't make a candle out of gasoline, right? I think <laughs> well, it's real. We could try. <laughs> Definitely, you know, Dr. Physics back at the uh, Far End podcast. So Scott, uh, Scott Boris in Factory. It's <laughs> very funny. But the truth is, I think it's, I think it's a smell that, that for me brings back, like you said, that memory. I think scent has memory in it and you smell it. And for me, it brings me right back to pre-flight, you know? Yeah. I shoved the candle in my husband's face and he was like, it smells like a urinal, but yeah. yeah, yeah. I was like, it smells so good. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, wholesomely, so, uh, like, I thought that was a remarkable thing about like all these memories of the tactile feedback of the aircraft, but those smells and whatnot, how we can latch onto those for memories. Like my my late grandpa had a certain cologne and, and smelling that almost 20 years later, just happenstance, someone in the mall had it and just instantly felt like I was back with him in the 90s. And so I have, yeah, I have a lot a of that thing. eclectic mix of smells from aviation and primarily just like how Cessna smell a little bit different than like a, a Cirrus mm-hmm. with newer leather. All those yeah. uh, things that you weren't expecting in a Discovery flight 
but all of a sudden they're just wham hit you like a freight train and and those are things i I remember some of the most about which i I thought was really interesting um compared to having spent hundreds and hundreds of hours on flight simulators years before and expecting you know just be staring at the instruments and reality is especially early on they really want you looking outside and feeling the aircraft sensory experience the the sight picture and all the things that are going on and uh you know depending on if you have the david clark ashames headsets uh (laughs) typically they're at the rental those were the best the green ones the, the the very um Yes, the outer cup is just cold or something, just, you know, compared to like a nicer pose. Yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or even the uh, light speeds, you know, the nice leather cup that basically those David Clarks, you know, you, you don't know what people are saying in general. And then you also can't hear because the headset sucks. And because it's a rental school, a uh, rental headset is just beat to heck. So, yeah, that, those yeah. Are, fun moments of early learning until you invest in your own headset. Um, Right. So those little things are what I was chasing when I, you know, I read about these initial test pilots and what their sight pictures, what they saw. And, and I was like, I need to under, like, it's one thing to read about it, right? It's one thing to watch it or whatever, but to actually live and experience it was amazing. It was, it's like being in school and going on a field trip, you know, it's real life learning for me anyway. So after your discovery flight, how did you start to transition to becoming a student? So like I said, when I do things, I do them 100%. I I go all in. So I I loved it. I got the experience and I was like, I'm going to do this. And um, I bought the books, the bag, the headset, everything. And I started flying like two to three times a week. And I was reading the book and I was like, you know, your, your CFI will tell you, oh, next time you come in, make sure you have chapter three read. Like I read chapter three and I wrote questions down in the back of the book and I texted him questions like throughout. And he was like, you had like, and he just wouldn't answer. He was like, this is, you just ask me later, you know? Um, so I did, I went, I went all in. Um, and, and it was great. And as I, I learned a little bit more about just, aircrafts in general, what I was really looking for in a pre-flight and in general, like what I was looking for in a CFI, like I realized more and more that the school that I initially had started with wasn't the right thing for me. You know, like I said, he was like, I can't, I'm sorry, I can't take your questions, you know? And I was like, I'm going to need someone that can, like, I, I, I really want to understand what's going on. I really want to be able to discuss with you. I want to, you know, I mean, listen, it's not going to happen at hours of the night, but like, let's, let's pick a time. Let's discuss over the, like over the phone. Let's whatever, like I'll, like I'll pay you. Well, it'll be a session or whatever it is. Like I needed Mm -hmm. to really understand and talk to someone and you know, not everybody's learning styles match. So that plus the maintenance, I was like, I think I need to move somewhere else. And that was when I began exploring a bunch of different schools. You know, everybody has their own methodology and their own way of doing things. And the second school I tried wasn't the right one for me either, by the way. They did everything by a the sporties curriculum, I think. And it was very, it was scripted almost. Like each lesson, they would like check off exactly mm-hmm. what benchmarks we had met and you know we would go back to lessons and this and that and I I wanted to enjoy it I wanted to um move I guess at my own pace I didn't want to have to keep up with lessons I didn't want two ground sessions for everyone in the sky like I read the book I read the book I discussed the book like I was 
a lot more involved in the knowledge of it than other people. You know, I got my AGI, my advanced ground instructor certificate. So now I'm, I'm, I have all the knowledge. I passed the test. I passed the test to teach the stuff. And they were still like, I'm sorry, but you owe us ground sessions. And I was like, I don't like, this is not, this is not the right thing. And so I moved to another school. You know, I think as you go through your journey and you get more knowledge, different places may not be correct. Yeah, that's really interesting about the AGI. I was going to ask you about how your curriculum worked out with ground school. In particular, a lot of people often try to knock out ground school as a whole module before. Some try to integrate it as they go. And it sounds like Mm -hmm. not only did you integrate it as you go through three different flight schools, but you also got your AGI and became a ground instructor. And in in some arguments, you could teach some of those CFIs about some of those uh, ground-related maneuvers and, and lessons. So. That's really awesome. You have that follow through and drive to to commit to the the, the all the curriculum. So, um, was that even offered to you in any sense for between any of those three schools, like a formal ground school? Because a lot of things are online now. I'm curious if that was something that you had to chase down on your own, or or was difficult to find. So the. Last of the flight schools, the one that I ultimately ended up with, has free ground school, I think once every two weeks, once every month, something like that. Um, But I I mean, I never went because by the time I got there, I already had my AGI. My first, um, the first flight school I was at was just like, read the book. And then the second flight school I was at was Sporties and the, the CFIs were required to sit with me in a classroom and like, I remember my CFI drawing like systems on the board. He like fully drew a dot, like a diagram of the engines. Like never at any point was it like, oh, go do King schools or whatever. You know, it was never like that. It was, I mean, each one had their own, had their own style, had their own flair. But I I mean, I, I did go and get my AGI. I feel like it's worthwhile to say because and maybe people could relate to this, I'm sure, is I had to stop my training in the middle. I mean, flying is not something that's feasible to do in one straight shot, whether it's expenses or timing or life that gets in the way. Like I had to stop flying. And I said, I don't want to totally give it up. So what else can I do? And studying on my own time and, uh, you know, I had to learn the material anyway, you know, and I have a teaching degree already. I didn't have to take the FOI, the, the fundamentals of instruction. Usually it's two tests. It's an AGI and an FOI. So I didn't have to take the fundamentals of instruction test. It was just an AGI test. So um, I was able to stay in it and stay involved and stay around aviation and around the flight school. And I even taught ground for a little bit. Um, I was able to stay in and around and be relevant, even though I wasn't necessarily flying. So I think that's important, too, because, you know, use it or lose it. Yeah, for sure. Being part you know, of the community, uh, I think, is really important. And then being in the, involved in it, even teaching as a student, is an excellent way to, to remain present. Just being around the FBO or the school or whatnot, Yeah, uh, that's awesome. Mm-hmm. So how did, how did your ground school training go, Jared? You were, yeah, were going to say know, something. Well, uh, one of the – I can kind of relate to that. Uh, some of the, the ground schools – the first flight school that I went to, it was, it was almost required that you went to their particular ground school. And I mentioned that I was enrolled in three different ground schools, the, the sporties, the Kings and 
the Gleam Glime, however you pronounce <laughs> it. And, uh, Gleam Glam and Gloom. Gleam Glam Gloom, exactly. And they kind of basically said, you know, if you're not enrolled in ours, we we don't care. And so that was one of the the reasons for transitioning to a different school. So I had a similar experience and I moved schools and um, it was very helpful. And I moved to the next school that I was currently earned my certificates at and they offered me every resource available and it made it incredibly, incredibly comfortable for earning both the private and the, the instrument and working on commercial. Now I have my commercial uh, commercial rating on the 30th and Ooh. see if I on the, the 31st of okay. July. So, wow. So we're, we're getting there, but, uh, you know, it, it's really important to, to be there for your students and what you offer as a, as a school. And that's something that w- I answer a lot of calls for our, the flight school that we partner with, and that's the number one question is, what, what do you recommend? How do you do this? How do you, how do you proceed with your training? And it's, we recommend sporties. We recommend anything that is best for the student. So mm-hmm. it was, it was, it was very beneficial. All those different Confirming types of learning. These are all one, uh, these are all part 61s, right? Correct. Right. I think that's important to say too, because there's the 141 option that none of us have gone through, yes. right? Yes, I, I have not. Yeah, I was curious if Same. Jared was going to go through a 141 with some of the, the curriculum laid out in terms of like um, sticking to certain modules. But then, uh, yeah, so that, that important distinction for new new students coming in, there's two different types of schools, more or less a less formal approach is a part 61 where you kind of go through and do what you need to do to get the certificate complete. And, and there's more formal training it typically is meant and reserved for future airline pilots called 141 and they're trying to get you through certain stages and there's certain elements and benefits by going through that 141 style school that uh, gets you more uh, opportunities down the stream where you can get uh, certain ratings and certificates sooner and um, unfortunately they're a bit more strict with how they, they formalize their lesson plans and and things around that. But if you have a family and a bit more informally, I think all of us have children at the point when we're training either our initial certificates or through additional uh, added certificates with something like the family time and other work constraints, you know, to pay for this whole certificate that makes part 61 a bit more manageable. Whereas 141, if you're a younger kid that is uh, funded in such a way that you can get out there and go from A to Z and knock out a rating. Like there's certain schools like ATP that that are um, well known for really setting you up to become an airline pilot and a CFI, if anything, in a couple months. So there are uh, right. previous episodes they say of this it's podcast. like drinking water from a fire hose. Yep. Water from a fire hose is exactly that. So you have to be set up as a studious student in that mindset where you're there to learn and, and take it in and work hard at it. I don't think you can afford as many distractions as you can with a part 61, but uh, especially having full-time career and or family. Um, I, I found it really important for me early on when I started, I started ground school in person. I wanted to hear what people had to say and the questions that came to mind from others things I wasn't thinking about. So I, I went through a kind of a semi-formal ground school 
locally and it was twice a week for a couple hours a day, a night early. And uh, so that was about three months of of training over the course of time. And we eventually got to the point where we're doing the mock written test. And that really pre- prepared me in that case for the real thing later when I went through and started to apply those theories into practice with um, some of those, like I said, ground-based maneuvers. So looking at flying um, from these books, but then starting to put them into practice when we're out there and, oh, this is what we were talking about. Some of those um, fundamentals of aerodynamics, all these uh, aeronautical decision-making, all these things you read about and starting to, to realize like how important fuel management and planning uh, and specifically when you're on your, your, your 10 hours of solo flight as a private pilot student and when you're doing your first, uh, long solo cross country as the first time you'll remember your first solo like vividly, but the, the long solo cross country, when you now have to go do this and you're by yourself going hundreds of miles away, uh, that that's, it's not necessarily a scary moment, but it's very uh, sobering in the way that. Yeah, I, I need to monitor the fuel and I need all these things that I was taught. Now it's time to put it into practice. Um, and, and a product that may, be, that may be a little bit different in your area because well, I just went to Abilene <laughs> and that, you, you have uh, I-30 West. Yeah. And yeah, it's no problem. Yeah. So in my area up in the Seattle area, we have terrain, <laughs> we have water, we have certain, I think it's easier to to navigate because there are some very iconic landmarks from, from that. And it's easy to keep north south really easy. But there's definitely distances and stretches of, of time where you're out there on your own. And uh, it's definitely one of those moments, I think, that um, finding the right instructor that's competent and you're comfortable with early on so that you're feeling fully prepared in those moments as you're moving through all the different stages and, and milestones as a new student into a soon to be private pilot applicant. Um, I, the advice I was given and I kind of understood as I've gone through all of my ratings, as I progress more life experience is to treat some of these uh, instructors kind of like a job interview so that, you know, you have a good mesh fit and you don't have to necessarily take that instructor that was given to you initially and just kind of, you know, go meet up with them informally before any of the lessons begin and just have a conversation and kind of explain your, your current scenario and uh, what your goals are. And do you want to be an airline pilot or just here for fun? Cause you, you know, saw some really cool clips on Instagram. Also, I think important to know if your instructor wants to be an airline pilot so that they're not going through their students really quickly and pushing through um, into their their advancement in their career where they leave you behind. I've had that happen twice where I've had an instructor mm-hmm. leave early yeah. and, and it was kind of a bummer because I agreed with their teaching style and had a certain vibe that was fun and it was fun to be learning and engaging with all these um kind of comical moments where you're just you're shoulder to shoulder with someone for at least 40 hours, you better have a good rapport with them. And so having that disappointment of having to find someone new uh, every time that would happen was always a, a bit of a challenge. And I feel like I lucked out with the people I ended up flying with over the course of time all across different categories and classes. But um, often some people may be assigned to an instructor and you just don't mesh well at all. So don't accept that instructor right away because 
they were assigned to you by someone in administration at the flight school, but uh, go have a conversation with them, have coffee or whatever your persuasion and just uh, talk about your mutual goals. I, th- I think it was really important. Yeah. Every time I've met a new instructor is just kind of feel that vibe. And luckily, like I said, I've, I've come across majority of the people I've flown with have been awesome, but there have been a few outliers that just, uh, you know, I was happy to not have to fly with them again. So, and then being realistic about that, but not accepting Same. that personality difference because, you know, you might not mesh well with them. Who knows how, how people perceive you. And especially when you're a new student and you're nervous and you're unfamiliar with how these G forces, the sights and the smells, all the, all these things are becoming normalized and you have a, a cadence of figuring out what, this is like, you know, and then you factor in weather and turbulence and how, how are you with doing stalls? And then it's a little bit gusty out there. Cause I, I know a instructor locally that is not a fan of stalls at all. And that's a pretty important part of the initial, uh, student pilot training. We're trying to get stall awareness, things regarding, you know, the, the tactile feel, all these chain, the chain of events that lead up to uh, a stall and hopefully not a spin trying to identify that stall lesson yeah yeah so yeah there's everyone i think everyone has their 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 stall that they'll remember forever they just let it go too far or um you know the weather was just miserable Jared's like no Mm -mm. yeah so you you want to make sure that you know as as an instructor you're not leaving students terrified but as a student that you feel like you have someone on your side that will help guide you to those solutions that don't involve um, hitting anything. So, um, cause you're going to be in certain scenarios where you, you are beyond the threshold of your understanding of what's happening. And they're, they're going to have the controls taken back from the instructor uh, for, to the instructor from you and being confident in, in that person to be able to save the ship and uh, let's start this over. I think is a good, that rapport that you're looking for, for the student and the instructor. And so early on, um, just kind of identifying that you are good to go with this person or like, ah, let's, you know, basically have no shame in trying to find someone else that maybe is a better fit for you. It could be an age related thing. You're just not vibing on that or other factors where they're on a mission to just knock out these ratings and then not necessarily custom tailoring their lessons to what you need. Especially By in part sixty one. As a female pilot, this is a thing. Like you're For gonna sure. be shoulder to shoulder with an instructor. I mean, it's not a secret that the majority of aviators are men, right? Precisely. It's a weird thing. Like I it took me a while to figure out that I um like I I preferred like a kid. I wanted like a twenty one year old kid that, you know, it was very like he was fresh out of his 141. And, you know, I looked at him as like, cause I mean, I'm, I'm in my thirties. I looked at him as a child. He looked me as an old lady and it was the exact perfect match for me. You know, like I think obviously like being a female is a big, a big thing too. And it also depends on what, what you're in it for and what you're looking for. Like some people are in it to get their private pilot's license. Some people want to go and get their instruments. Some people want to be professional pilots. Some people are just flying out of you know, as a hobby, they're taking lessons just for fun. So maybe you don't want an instructor that's as serious. You want somebody that's more like a friend, somebody who you can really joke around with and hang out with. And, you know, obviously you're paying them, but it's, it's 
for the fun of it. Like, you know, somebody, let's say, can't get a medical and is like, I'm just going to fly for fun, right? And then so it, it really all depends on on where you're at and what you are personally comfortable with. And, you know, like the second school that I went to, the one that used the sporties curriculum was very, very serious. And I was like, guys, I'm, I'm in it right now as a hobby. I'm not really looking to to get a license at the at the moment. And they were like, that's weird. Let me go ask the chief pilot if we can see you. And I was like, oh, okay. You know, like I thought you would just take my, like take my money and be okay with it. And they were like, no, we, we run a very serious program here, ma'am. You know? <laughs> and uh, it just, it wasn't, it wasn't the right, the right fit for me. So um, I think it really depends on where you are in your flying career, what your intentions are and, you know, who you are. Like I said, being a female aviator is, is a thing. You know, regionally, I, I, I wonder if, I, I don't know how it is differently for uh, per New York or Texas or Seattle, but if it differs regionally, uh, that initial contact call, uh, what what is your end goal here? Are mm-hmm. you looking to get a private? Are you looking to get a commercial? Are you looking to be airline? Are you ATP? Um, what What is your background? And I feel like a lot of that can play into that. I, uh, that training, that initial setup, that initial contact. And I've taken a lot of those calls and it's been eye-opening. It really has of, well, I've, I, I'm a flight attendant and I'm looking, my my buddy said I need to get training for to be a pilot. Why not? Uh, you know, some so-and-so works for American Airlines or Southwest and this is a great time to be a pilot. Okay, well, this is uh, uh, the information needed is, is is really important to uh how the training progresses and that that initial uh aspect of what you're wanting to do yeah you guys want a funny story when i was a ground instructor um i had to have the same conversations with people right like what is what's your goals what's the end game And um, I had a student who said, um, I want to take a plane and I want to triangulate the earth in a single, yep, mm -hmm, in a, in a single prop, the the, uh, engine, whatever. I want to be able to prove that the earth is flat. And I was like, um... I'm not sure that I can help you with that, but I can help you get past your written. I was like, I, I guess, I guess if this is how this is is gonna go, I was like, what? He's like, I'm still in my sh- what do you call it? A vehicle selection phase, and I'm considering an airplane. I I may I may end up on a boat, or I may end up in a vehicle that's not created yet um i said okay well um like i didn't know what to do with that yeah it, like, is this that's like not a giant an intention you're meme? used to <laughs> it was so i was like um okay i guess we'll start with navigation then i like i don't know i heard some you advice wanna, about oh. people that don't believe in the moon landing and uh oh. you, know, you believe in the moon landing you believe in the moon <laughs> uh, in the moon <laughs> well <laughs> what's wrong with you, you well you know, kind of going back to uh, the topic of flight, uh, the, your initial flight school. Um, one of the first things that when you get into aviation and you and you start flying and and you make the decision to do 
flight training, right? I had an initial interview and the first thing that was told to me was aviation is not a poor man's game. And I didn't know how to take that. I didn't know if hmm. that was a sizing me up kind of thing. If that was a, uh, a quantifying the buyer aspect. And, you know, we have such a demographic now from young individuals to older individuals. Uh, shout out to Joseph Croft on PG. Making a transition wants to fly King Airs. You know, that's, uh-uh. a, that's, a, that's a great change. He, he doesn't want to go commercial. Or he doesn't want to go to the airlines or 121. Um, it's for everybody, and it's it's welcoming. Yeah, it's it's a challenging thing to introduce something like that to a buyer. Uh, I I don't. Know. Yeah, that is unfortunately an honest uh, self evaluation. <laughs> like you can kind of expand this over time, but can I afford this fundamentally? Um, I think there's different aspects about how you can make that happen. And that's a lot of personal choices and impacts in terms of, you know, your, your life scenario, especially if you have a family, I would argue that most people would prioritize their family over flying, but there's definitely opportunities when you don't have a family to spend more money and time with your flying, uh, as a solo aspect, a solo effort really. And, uh, that devotion I, I saw, especially a, a younger friend of mine who was in his younger 20s doing the ATP 141. That was his entire life. And they're in all hours practically, you know, and uh, in the course, short course of time within six months, I just remember also uh, very not long after his graduation from that whole program, you know, he's in jets for real. And so it was, wow. it's amazing if uh, you don't have some of those obligations of some of uh, the, the rest of us have with, you uh, being um, a family person, I I happened to come across like a, a scenario before I had kids. I was flying a lot and uh, suddenly found out that we we're going to have twin daughters born. And that mm-hmm. honestly put the brakes on for five solid years of all of my hobbies until I got that sorted out and then hit it again really hard. And within the matter of a few years um, after that, I was having flown uh, more than ever and knocked out several ratings including a helicopter, which is great. So the girls kind of grew up, the young girls grew up with helicopters in their lives for an extended amount of time where they didn't know any different. It was kind of funny having that uh, change in my lifestyle from being uh, effectively like a bachelor mode into being a parent and then being this uh, student pilot all the way through to multiple categories and classes. And that was really a fixture of my life at that point was continuing to be um, high priority with my children and being an excellent parent, but like being really into aviation when things started to get more, uh, some certain life changes happened for me in terms of my career when it made it a bit more easy to continue to fly more on a regular basis. And so, you know, still have to have that cadence and find that, that amount that you're willing to, uh, sacrifice from one or another out of these different buckets you have. But yeah, fundamentally, you know, it's such a good point being present for your family throughout the whole portion of any of this is definitely really important to me, but some, some have better opportunities to, to find that priority in, in timing than others. And, uh, yeah, I, I, f- I felt pretty lucky that it's worked out for me thus far. 
uh, and the girls have grown up in a unique kind of aviation environment, but I'm still around with them. And um, I've through their entire elementary school career, I got to go on every single um, uh, field trip and every, every event that was even possible to go on. And so um, in, in other words, you start to feel like you're spreading yourself out quite a bit because in, in the involvement in training in aviation requires a lot of mental fortitude and and practice and um, talking and just being around in the community. You can't just mm-hmm. arrive and drive. You really have to be a part of something. So showing up to the the flight school after hours and just flying with other people, being part of that whole uh, environment and saturating some of their knowledge and some of their, uh, so like the hangar talk, all the things that aren't involved with you flying physically, but just being there mentally is really important aspect of, I think, succeeding and, and wholesomely. And that's kind of where I found this podcast, for example, I wanted some stupid dry content and then found this hilarious set of characters. Oh and my then, God. And then same. here we are. Yeah. So in between, why else would you look for far aim? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why else? Yeah, yeah. It's, it's insane. So like trying to you know, flood fill those gaps between like driving from home to the flight school or commuting to work and then just listening, being part of something, even if you never meet us in person, um, you'll hear some of our stories and Rob Lee and Scott, all these things that just, you start to balance, um, your own application of, of time from like what, people have done and learned from and made mistakes from and start to figure out where you are with these, um, yeah, opportunities. So everyone has a different path and journey that they can follow and, and, and none are the correct ones, but the ones have worked out well for others. In other words, um, go explore, have fun. Uh, it should be fun. If you're not having fun, maybe talk to some other it instructors. Yeah. And it, it is expensive, but there's certain ways to, uh, you know, you the light sport and there's a sport pilot and there's other ways to kind of get involved in aviation, but not fully commit. But I was thinking about that recently. Yeah. And actually. so it is, it, it isn't as it isn't, you know, if you, if you think about it, there's so many programs out there that can get kids introduced. I mean, around here in the DFW area, there are so many programs that are aviation centric and, we are really grateful for them. And uh, it's, it's a focus on the trades as well as, you know, f- uh, higher education. And so aviation is, is, is kind of the forerunner here in our area, personally. I'm sure it is in y'all's area because it is uh, so prevalent. But y- there are aspects to get into it easily, affordably. And I just... We just want that to be known. One of my flight schools, one of them, one of the three is on Groupon and you can buy like three hours for like so much cheaper. It's worth looking at for sure. Yeah. So you, it's like Before. elaborate ruse. You stack on the Groupons, do your entire flight training through Groupon. and <laughs> pad yeah. the, <laughs> That's actually how I got into helicopters. I have a bunch of friends that are rotorcraft pilots and it was always something I wanted to do and something I had in my mind. And there was a group on for, uh, I think it was just a half hour intro flight in a, in a Robinson. And then that's how I got my start. And then before I knew it, I was flying primarily helicopters for a couple of years, doing ridiculous things with these things, uh, you know, that I, I would never thought as a fixed wing pilot I'd ever be in, involved with and uh, out just picking up cones and fields and knocking them over for fun and, you know, landing in the woods and um, 
trading altitude for airspeed off of cliffs, kind of like a roller coaster. And, All right, calm um, down, altitude yeah. for airspeed. It's a sinking <laughs> rock, a helicopter. No, we're hovering like at the, cl- the cl- mm-hmm. uh, cliff and uh, just like push that nose Jared's forward again in Robinson. It's, it's shaped like a rock uh, uh, with a stick attached. Uh, it's, it's a four got to no one glide ratio. ratio. I'm you. No. I'm with you. I'm with you, Barb. It's way I too mean, much really. fun. And I had it's that not even a thing that mindset you did in the past. I'm like, oh, I'm not doing that. And I did my intro flight and changed my life. Hmm. Did you get your face swing before your rotorcraft? Yeah, yeah. The f- okay. Fun fact: Actually, um, I was born in 1983. I uh, fun went fact to, went to uh, what middle. I'm Are sorry. You sure? Yeah. <laughs> went to Wait, uh, why? What's the private what? pilot ground school in 1995? So I was in fifth grade, and my parents bought me. Uh, the full uh, ground school experience when I was like, I think 10 years old. So I was in there with a bunch of 40 year olds and I, you know, I didn't do as well that's in terms awesome. of like the mock test, but that's how committed I've been to aviation back. I started flight school back in the nineties and I was born in the eighties. <laughs> wow. So I, you know, took some time having gone through middle school, high school, finding a career that could support some of this. And then uh, back in the late 2000s, I actually started my own as a real deal effort as an adult be- before kids and then uh, started you know, fixed wing right here out of just a really small, uh, not really small airport, but a uncontrolled field and uh, eventually finished basically my first private pilot certificate at a class Delta next to basically the Boeing factory. So it had these heavies, twin owl heavies, uh, mixing it up in this you know, 172. Yeah. And the best part is like when you're short final somewhere and there's a 747 waiting for you. So oh, gosh. opportunities like that. And uh, yeah, so mixed variety and then same thing with the helicopter training, same um, pain field airport flying uh, again from the ramp directly because taxiways are for, for losers. So, um, to rock you know. on a stick. <laughs> uh, I love the hate. You know, one of my best memories was uh, getting my private license was uh, coming into a control field in North Fort Worth, and w- it has adjoining runways, uh, parallel runways, and the the left runway had I I I have ten miles to go, and. There's an FA-18 coming in, and oh. he parallels me. And getting to land with a Navy aircraft because the uh, there's a joint base, uh, a joint reserve base uh, just nearby. Uh, getting to land side by side with that was such a memorable experience, and it's just those those memories that you get through your training. I hope everybody gets them. Um, if you ever they're, want they're to fly with F-18s, you should just squawk 7,500, call it a day. Or not 75. Well, what is it? 77? No, it's 75. 75. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I mean, f- July 4th is coming up. So uh, it's yeah, America. America. <laughs> I mean, fireworks. So that's right. That's right. I love so. that. You know, there was there was just uh, an, and I guess it wasn't an, wasn't even an incident. It was an accident. We could discuss that happened yes. with the uh, the the F was it F sixteens that were flying yeah. alongside the, the yeah yeah the citation, citation I believe yeah yeah was a bad deal it's terrifying it's not even the yeah. first time something like that happened you know <clears throat> no 
The supersonic boom was heard over mul- multiple states, including ours. Wow. Um, there are noise, noise complaints of why there was a supersonic boom mm. and was it a problem? So, From that, that was, uh, specific that incident, you, you heard the sonic boom over Texas? Personally, I did not hear it, but the uh, multiple reports did. Wow. That's, it was, that's incredible. Uh, rumor is yes. it was just Taco Bell. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> by the way, Taco Bell has a breakfast taco. Yeah. Sponsored by. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I imagine. That's funny. Yeah. But wow, uh, you're right. No, that is a very memorable experience. I mean, to be up there like that with fighter jets, that's not even, that's crazy. Yeah. Isn't that cool landing in parallel runways if your airport supports that? I've had so many memories of uh, flying alongside with the 777, and they're massive birds. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a moment where you're kind of flying alongside of each other, even though you're going at different airspeeds. There's just that moment where you're kind of almost holding hands. You're like, yeah, we're we're doing it like well, wolf pack, you know. We're and, the uh, same. Yeah, yeah, same thing. <laughs> yeah. And the reality is that, you know, those guys started in same, Cessnas same. too, conceivably, and or Pipers. Absolutely. But, um, even all, those fighter jet pilots started yep, out in little started somewhere Some, something piston related probably mm-hmm. that's right. but that's the funny thing about the helicopter world is that there are many rich kids that jumped right into turbine helicopters and skipped all the robinsons and so and or they went into the military and so they don't have some of the struggles of the uh the poor kids like me and the robinsons um I, I enjoy Robinsons, but they get so much flack from the rich kids that started in like Bells or or even like Blackhawks. So, um, yeah, it's funny. Um, all the different perspectives. Like I, I know someone that started flying uh, initially in Cirrus aircraft and, you know, yeah. it's a very nice airplane. I have a few hours in them and really would enjoy to own one fundamentally as as a owner downstream. But uh I don't, you know, there's certain things that almost feels like you should pay your dues in some crappy airplane and work your way up. But why not have like this really sweet airplane to learn to fly in? But then, you know, there's the argument by like uh, the Cubs or the Champs, no electrical, no flaps, all that, the hand prop, you know, like where do you start? Like what's reasonable to to go through that suffrage on, um, you know, because everything's for flight and all this glass panel stuff and, and navigating all these, all the information before your fingertips doesn't suck. Like, why should you go through, you know, why do we still have E6Bs? I know there's still like fundamental learnings from that, that we need to teach new students, but, you know, finding that balance of, uh, back to the like flight school aspect of that, uh, um, flight planning with paper charts, E6Bs, like how, how deep into it, do you want to go with that and your instructor? And then so I know that I have to na- tell you, no, go ahead. You continue. Cause I heard that they're allowing more for flight now. Cause this, before I was mm. flying in private pilot for flight, wasn't a thing. And so I had to do those paper charts, right. those E6Bs. And then I'll, my neighbor is learning as a student and has for flight. I'm like, dude, I would just like stick to the charts for now. So you at least, you know, not that it, realistically would an iPad fail. Probably not, but it could. But just having a better understanding of where those uh, ForeFlight and all the other apps are coming from, uh, I think it, yeah. it's great. But but not not just to make this whole experience suck. But you know, when are we going to move to that point where everything is electronic and we don't have those paper charts anymore? 
Um, so I, th- yeah, I think that I can speak to this even as, as a teacher, as an educator, my background is in education. I, I mean, I taught third and fourth grade for 10 years. Um, you learn a lot of the fundamentals in those years, right? You learn what multiplication is, you learn how to add and regroup or whatever it is. And it's like the same argument could be made. It's like, well, how come you don't just start with a calculator? You know, the whole idea is that you understand fundamentally, just like you said, Tyler, you understand fundamentally what's going on and what conceptually is happening. What what am I really doing here? If I take, you know, 52 and add 47 or whatever, you know, and you actually take 52 little chips and 47 little chips and you add them together and you physically like really manipulate it and understand it, you have a better conceptual idea of what is going on. And as opposed to if you just plugged it into a calculator and you learned just how to plug it into a calculator. Um, So I think that's the idea behind using the paper charts and behind using the E6B. Um, The E6B is, uh, you know, a a take on the original slide rule. I mean, they they sent men to the moon using a slide rule. It wasn't a calculator. So I, I I think the idea behind uh, using those, like I said, the, the low tech is really not, I mean, yes, you could use it in case of an emergency if everything fails, but you really should have a solid foundation and a conceptual understanding of what you're doing if you're going to be in such a high stakes world like the sky, you know, you should really know what's what's up. Yeah, on the fly, uh, making adjustments in those scenarios where you, you're something is off script and typically we're out flying around. Uh, and you start engaging with the air traffic control, you, there's typically the script that you kind of expect and things are going through the motions. And when those that script changes, how are you going to adapt? And that's where I think uh, finding a, f- a flight instructor that is going to throw you some, some uh, scenarios they weren't prepared for you know, early on, midterm, and then later into your, your flying uh, training for private in particular is going to really set you up to be thinking more critically about uh, all all the aspects of flight, you know, in terms of the pre-flight all the way to the end and then debriefing. Um, so uh, having that fundamental knowledge of uh, math helps, but, uh, you know, why? The, I like to ask a lot of why questions. Like, why, why are we concerned about this? And, you know, why a lot of these regulations we have for like Part 91 in particular are written in blood because some someone did something stupid and then, you know, died because of it. And so let's fix that problem. See, we are the far aim podcast. Yeah. <laughs> it, we mentioned it thing. once an episode. Yeah. Yes. So, uh, I, I, I recommend anyone getting into this to definitely ask why rather than just accepting these as facts and, uh, not to challenge or question the system, but just to understand more in depth why that is a concern. Like, why do we, you know, ground the airplane before we fuel it. Um, mm-hmm. So, and then do you ground a, 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 a Cirrus that's a composite aircraft? So some of those, you get deeper dives into that in terms of like um, all the different considerations for, you know, retractable landing gear versus fixed landing gear and some of the things you're looking at as you start to expand your aviation career from this trainer Cessna all the way up through a jet. There's a lot of applications of some of that similar logic but understanding that why um, will then kind of change contextually depending on the type of airframe or category or class you're flying. And I did an episode uh, almost a year ago or about a year ago on um, seaplanes and some of that involvement with water 
totally changed, reframed all the things I considered uh, pre-flighting, just ground-based aircraft. Suddenly you have water to deal with. And how how and why? Why is this important? Um, why are there you know springs on on this water rudder, you know, in case something gets jammed, you can help free it and things um, you didn't necessarily consider because you're going to go through the different scenarios each flight you fly, but eventually you kind of evolve and go through different flight schools, different instructors, different types of aircraft. You'll go from the Cessnas to the Pipers to the Cirrus and um, hopefully everyone experienced a jet or a helicopter, but those things that are different suddenly is a learning moment and then I feel just very strongly that a good instructor early on will have you asking those questions and exploring and not just accepting what you have in front of you is, is what it is. So I think the, the inquisitive pilots are, are great pilots that um, learn and adapt from that and continue. So um, so what are, what are your goals for flying now, uh, Barb? You've been around a bit. Um, mm-hmm. You continue just building hours and enjoying that or yeah absolutely it's uh well 2023 is almost half over which is crazy town right um but you know what's amazing so i i I mean i really do fly out of a hobby it's not you Mm -hmm. know a job it's not a career for me i do it because i enjoy it and i'm not necessarily pursuing anything serious um but what's been nice is access to new people and a supportive aviation community because initially it was just me and like a CFI and um, I have to find somebody that sort of, like I said, agreed with the idea that I wasn't maybe, you know, going to take my, going to do a check ride or whatever it was. Like I, I needed someone who was willing to just fly with me. And now that I have like access to a wider aviation community, I mean, I, I'm flying with friends, I'm flying with different people, I, I'm meeting all kinds of people from this flight school, from that flight school, to people who are totally different ages than I am. I mean, it's it's been amazing. So just having the opportunity to fly with people I consider friends is a totally different experience. Um, and so that's really where I am. And I'm, I'm enjoying every second of it. Again, there's nothing better than leaving the ground. It makes me feel so grounded. So it's awesome. <laughs> That's awesome. I, I love seeing the evolution of people getting involved. So, Jared, when we met, it was at Precosh in Ohio in July. So it's almost a year, almost a year anniversary between us. <laughs> so almost, almost. So basically, you had just gotten your private pilot, and you flew all the way from Texas mm-hmm. up to Ohio. And I remember this famously with the the rudder trim out of trim. So, um, <laughs> since then, More left since then you were, you know, pretty new private pilot at that time and you've pushed through multiple ratings since then in less than a year. Um, sounds like you're involved in a flight school and you're, you're in the community and you're kind of getting out there with, uh, other people flying often. I see you, um, with a lot of updates on Facebook and all other social media. How's that going? You know, it's really going well, uh, since, being a precaution and the entire um, uh, experience there was just incredible. I wish it was every year. Come on, Rob. Come yeah, on, every Rob. Year. I'm just yeah. saying. Uh, no, uh, you know, flying, uh, we, we actually decided to partner up and purchase a bunch of airplanes and lease them, lease them 
to a flight school. And so they're in training. So learning so much about the flight training model, as well as the ownership model and the maintenance and uh, having a just a really above bar maintenance it, it, it's challenging. It really is. It's it's, it's a big deal, uh, though. Like I left a flight it, school because of maintenance, and that is one reason why so many people come to us. Um, and we, it's I, that's one reason why I left one of the flight schools that I originally trained for. But you know, it's just the journey, the grind, and talking with everybody that you do coming into a flight school. It, it makes it really worthwhile where they're coming from, why they're doing what they're doing, why they chose aviation, and then being there for that first solo, being there for that check ride. That congratulatory, uh, on Friday, we we just congratulated uh, a partner for his his CFI initial. And, you know, it's just seeing that, that absolute just exhaustion from a 10-hour check ride. And knowing it's just pure joy on his face and seeing how much he's worked for it and the process of going through it every single bit from private to CFI to see if, you know, CFII it's, it's amazing. It really is. I, I wish everybody could see the back end side of it. I, I can't emphasize it enough. I really can't. Yeah. Isn't that crazy journey? Like I said, from about a year ago where you were to where you are now and then all the prospects you have ahead of you especially as like a aircraft owner you start to see those aircraft that you have part ownership in helping create those memories and it starts to build that community and being part of the part of that community you're involved in it more often and it's kind of this reciprocal thing that i feel like ever since i got my certificates in different uh categories and classes i've spent more time in in those um, just as a participant in, in some kind of flying event rather than paying per hour to go experience it, you just kind of get invited into the club and then you, you are then in that scenario where I was in this Airbus helicopters like a six seater helicopters. Awesome. Just flying around that we do like a 20 minute thing. It was like eight hours of flying and it cost me zero dollars. And so I ended up in an F 35 sim. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so so you have we need to talk about that. Yeah, so you have these different <laughs> things that when you start getting involved in aviation, they start to come out of the the uh, wallpaper essentially, and and it costs you nothing versus that initial investment. It seems like so much. Like I can't afford this, and you get in that community, and all of a sudden these opportunities jump out at you, and you can you can get more flying time, just like as as a passenger at least. And you see some of these different scenarios, all these different types of airplanes and simulators, and then. Um, so Barb recently engaged with, there's a really cool F-35 sim out in the New York city area. Let's talk about that. Hey everybody, Robert here without access to a proper microphone. Uh, so I give a huge thank you to Barb, Tyler, and Jared for, uh, for helping us out here while Scott Lee and I are, are out. I'm going to divide this up into two different shows because we got an hour right here, and there's almost another hour that can be a standalone episode about simulators. So that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to cut it off here, and we are going to continue this in episode 136. 
So stay tuned. Uh, thank you for listening. Thank you again, Tyler, Jared, and Barb for, for doing this. Just kind of get a feel for it. So this is it. Hi, Rob. It's 512 uh, or 812 your time. Uh, we'll set a timer for about an hour and then uh, see what's going on. So how was everyone's Sunday? Jared, you can go first. I heard it was really warm where you were. Well, it was very warm. I am a bit of a red lobster. So <laughs> so do you have a pool or a pool near you? Pool near us. My in-laws live in our same neighborhood. And so we are grateful for that. Awesome. I hear that. How's the smoke in yeah. New York? It's it's not as bad anymore. It really smelled yeah. awful. And it was bright orange the other day. Like burnt maple Today syrup? it's... Oh my gosh, crazy. It was like, but it, it wasn't 9-11 vibes. It smelled like a fireplace. Yeah. So I didn't mind it as much, but um, we were outside today. So do you have a garage the air is okay. that you leave your cars in or out of? Or because we had those Canadian wildfires a couple of years ago and all the ash left on the cars was kind of acidic to the paint. And so we're really concerned about all that. Wow. I, we do have a garage, but um, my husband keeps his car in there because Closed. it's a Tesla and he Good. needs to charge it. Cool. So uh, so he yeah. gets the garage. Uh, yeah. yeah no, you have to be careful because if you get that ash wet and it can create some other problems for the paint too. It kind of eats away the clear coat and all that. So be very careful because it's very sharp. So... Um, Welcome to Car Facts yeah. with Tyler. <laughs> yes. I was concerned. Like, we have half the cars in garages and the other one's outside, and then those poor bastards, you know, have to deal with the, uh, the ash and whatnot from the Canadian wildfires. So we occasionally have wildfires mm. here in our area. In fact, last time Jared was in my area, he had to deal with that flying around in that. Um, was very it's nasty. Horrible. Do you wear a mask when it happens? You know... It, the first time it really, really happened was in the 2020 era. So kind of by default, this whole area was wearing that in, in general, but then augmented with the actual risk of inhalation of like actual ash particles. It was just like, like a war zone out here. So it was pretty gnarly. Ultimately, you know, the advice is just to stay inside the best you do. There's only so much filtration your air filter will do from the furnace. So you had to be on top of that. And it was gross after just like a week changing out their furnace filter, um, knowing that that was still like going through our house. And uh, yeah, unfortunately, this part of the world, it seems like it's going to be an annual event. So it's unusual that the East Coast gets it this early. And if at all. So, um, yeah, we're pretty much due for our own wildfires here soon in the Seattle area. And it extends all the way down to Oregon and whatnot. Wow. So there were tons mm. of New Yorkers in masks, like yeah. give a New Yorker a, a reason to wear one. And they're like, yeah, yeah, I saw that Instagram so. story. Um, <laughs> the, uh, I, it's probably similar in, in the Seattle area, but definitely in the portion of the Seattle area I live in is more rural and people are definitely over it. So, um, yeah. So I was reminding Barb to uh, Jared, make sure you put your phone away from your table or anything that vibrates so that if you get a text in between any of this, it doesn't get into the recording. I did that during my seaplane episode and I heard it and I was, I couldn't do anything about it. I thought it was far away. So I put it on a, like a pillow over there. 
so it's out of the way. It's on the carpet next to me. Cool. Um, listen, I can't guarantee that there is not a one-year-old baby girl. Oh yeah, we already got possibly it. possibly screaming outside. Yeah, we. So if you can't hear that right now, um, yeah, we, we heard it earlier when you had different audio source. I think that Mike does a pretty good job of uh, getting that dialed out. So it's um, good. I'm grateful. Otherwise, not on. we're you know team one thirty-five. So our lack yeah. of precision is uh, you know desirable. So. I, I'll just uh, start doing an opening, and I presume that Rob will do some kind of audio intro as well, and then we'll go from there. Um, I'll just open it up, and then you guys can introduce yourselves by name, and then uh, we'll go from there. So, all right, here we go. Sounds great. Are everyone ready? Ready. All right, cool. Ready. Welcome to the Far Aim Podcast. I'm Tyler Brunkhorst. Barbara Sutton. <laughs> Let's do it again. <laughs> All right. 